Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Thousands of prospective emigrants first learned about the Carolina colony and booked passage to that distant land at a small coffee shop in the heart of London. From the 1670s to the 1830s, the Carolina Coffee House in Birchin Lane served as the epicenter for conversations about the colony, its business opportunities, and its residents. To better understand the important role of this long-forgotten coffee spot, we'll take a tour through its caffeinated history and conclude with a virtual stroll through Birchin Lane. The early history of the cultivation of coffee for human consumption is rooted in the mountains of Ethiopia, from which the practice spread eastward of that ancient African landscape. European crusaders of the Middle Ages may have encountered coffee culture among their Arabic foes in what we now call the Near East, but they apparently did not bring home an addiction to the black stuff when they returned. Coffee beans first came to England at some point in the first half of the 17th century with English merchants with Dutch connections who were trading in the East Indies, that is, Asia. The beans were initially regarded as something of a novelty with dubious commercial potential. The first establishment in England to retail coffee as a hot beverage appeared in Oxford in 1650, and by 1652, there was a coffee shop in the city of London. More specifically, the first coffee house in London was located in St. Michael's Alley, just a few yards to the southeast of the Royal Exchange, in a ward known as Cornell. The location of the first London coffeehouse is significant. Cornell isn't just another picturesque neighborhood in that ancient city. It's the epicenter of commerce within a city known as the capital of international business. From the opening in 1562 of the first Royal Exchange facing Cornell Street, that ward became known as the place to go to meet like-minded folks interested in trade, finance, and profit. The rise of joint stock companies in the 17th century, like the Virginia Company, the East India Company, and the Royal African Company, drew more investors to Cornell, and the creation of the Bank of England in 1694 solidified the ward's reputation as a center for business. Even today, in 2020, between Threadneedle Street on the north and Lombard Street on the south, you'll find more international business transacted in Cornell than in many sovereign nations combined. Following the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660, that nation experienced a strong resurgence of trade and investment. A new species of financial speculators and investors arose who sought to take advantage of England's growing trade networks around the globe, but the use of fixed formal offices was not yet a regular practice. Looking for places to meet clients and partners for conversation, the businessmen of Cornell turned to the newfangled coffeehouses that were popping up throughout the neighborhood. In contrast to ye old-fashioned taverns and alehouses that served beer, wine, and spiritous liquors to a diverse, often rowdy clientele, the coffee houses and coffee rooms of post-Restoration London catered to a more affluent customer looking for a more refined, business-friendly environment. 
coffee was the fashionable beverage du jour for English gentlemen of the late 17th and early 18th centuries, but coffee houses served a variety of stronger drinks as well. Besides the potent black stuff, these novel establishments offered another new and highly addictive commodity for which businessmen clamored. News. The proprietors of various Cornell coffee houses, often called coffee men, strove to acquire, collect, and share news of all sorts with their customers, who would then make business decisions based on the information at hand. If, for example, one knew that a hurricane had recently damaged the sugarcane crop in faraway Jamaica, one could reasonably predict that the price of sugar at the nearby Royal Exchange would soon increase, and then make, or recommend, investments accordingly. The advent of regular printed newspapers was a direct outgrowth of this sort of commodification of information that began as a practical marketing tool in the coffee houses of late 17th century Cornell. The availability of news or advices from all over England, continental Europe, and the far-flung colonies drew men of commerce as well as educated men in general. Sorry, ladies, early coffee houses were not receptive to the presence of intelligent women. Discussions of politics, philosophy, art, music, and other erudite topics also enlivened many a coffee house, especially during their heyday in the 18th century. Some coffee houses even charged a penny for admission, a practice that inspired more than one writer to describe them as penny universities. From these dens of casual business and rarefied banter emerged such cultural phenomena as the Royal Society, Freemasonry, Lloyd's List, building insurance schemes, public museums, concert societies, periodic magazines, and the Carolina Colony. To be clear, I know of no evidence suggesting that the creation of the Carolina Colony in 1663 was directly related to a series of conversations that took place in a London coffeehouse. Considering the fashion for coffeehouses at that time, and considering the social life of the men who were responsible for creating Carolina, however, it would surprise me if at least some of the business conversations that led to the Carolina Charter of 1663 did not take place at one of the scores of coffeehouses in the city. The eight lords proprietors, to whom King Charles II granted Carolina, were wealthy, well-connected men with a variety of business interests, but none of them ever visited their colonial possession. Instead, they associated and contracted with other Englishmen who promoted the colony as an investment opportunity and sought to recruit volunteers to travel abroad to settle the land. These subsequent but very necessary conversations must have taken place at coffee houses in the shadow of the Royal Exchange in Cornell. The Great London Fire of September 1666 decimated Cornell in the heart of the old city, but the nation's financial sector was quickly rebuilt. A new Royal Exchange building opened in 1669, and new coffee houses reappeared like mushrooms throughout the neighborhood. Despite anti-coffee propaganda that described the dark brew as a quote-unquote ninny broth that allegedly destroyed a man's sexual virility, the beverage's popularity continued to grow and spread throughout the island nation. 
the fledgling English Postal Service co-opted the proliferation of coffee houses by using them as depots for the collection and distribution of mail. By the turn of the 18th century, there were many hundreds of coffee houses spread across the city of London, with a significant concentration near the Royal Exchange in Cornell. Within this urban landscape of coffee and conversation arose a number of establishments catering to specific business interests. Gentlemen interested in investing in or traveling to the colony of Virginia, for example, could visit the Virginia Coffee House in Cornell and speak with agents and travelers who had first-hand knowledge of that place. If you needed to send a message to an associate in Jamaica, you went to the Jamaica Coffee House in St. Michael's Alley and dropped a letter in the mailbag, which would travel outbound with the next ship departing for that island. If you were waiting to hear news of your cousin visiting the Holy Land, you turned a few steps to the east and made inquiries at the Jerusalem Coffee House. If you wanted to wag your finger in a scolding fashion at the men investing in the slave trade, you turned back to St. Michael's Alley into the African Coffee House. In short, Cornell once hosted scores of coffee outlets that specialized in connecting English investors and families with business concerns and immigrants spread around the world. Among the numerous geo-specific dens of caffeine was, of course, the Carolina Coffee House, which stood approximately 200 feet southeast of the Royal Exchange. It was situated on the east side of a narrow footpath called Birchen Lane, just four doors south of Cornell Street. We don't know precisely when the Carolina Coffee House served its first cup of joe, but documentary evidence shows that it was in operation before 1682. London didn't have a street address numbering system until the late 1760s, at which point the Carolina Coffee House was designated number 25 Birchen Lane. Published directories of the English capital demonstrate that it remained at this location until at least 1831. From time to time during its century and a half of operation, London's Carolina Coffee House also shared space with the representatives of other colonial centers. Business directories from 18th century London show that its name was occasionally expanded to the Carolina and Pennsylvania Coffee House, or the Pennsylvania, Carolina, and Georgia Coffee House, or the Amsterdam, Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Pensacola Coffee House, or the Carolina and Honduras Coffee House. Regardless of who else was sharing the tables during its long tenure, businessmen, investors, travelers, and relatives could always visit this Birchen Lane fixture to find a direct line of communication with Charleston. To my knowledge, the earliest reference to the Carolina Coffee House appears in a pamphlet published in the Cornhill Ward of London in 1682 by Samuel Wilson, titled an account of the province of Carolina in America. In the conclusion of that promotional work, the author invited anyone interested in learning more about the colony to ask for further information. Quote, Some of the Lord's proprietors, or myself, will be every Tuesday at 11 of the clock at the Carolina Coffee House in Birchen Lane, near the Royal Exchange, to inform all people what ships are going, or any other things, whatever. End quote. 
We have very little surviving information about the proprietors of the Carolina Coffeehouse or the identity of the waiters and baristas, but curiously, a few names have survived in records on both sides of the Atlantic. Late in the year 1699, for example, Edward Crisp of London, coffee man, appointed Thomas Pinckney and Christopher Smith, both Carolina merchants, to act as his attorneys in recovering a debt from Charles Odensell of Charleston. In a court deposition filed in the spring of 1721, Edward Crisp identified himself as a coffee man at the Carolina Coffee House in Birchin Lane, where he regularly witnessed some of the Lord's proprietors interacting with businessmen and others traveling to and from the Carolina colony in the early years of the 18th century. Whether Edward Crisp was the proprietor of the Carolina Coffee House between the late 1690s and the early 1720s, or whether he was simply a barista who prepared bowls of java for drowsy customers, is still an unresolved matter. Nevertheless, we can be sure that he was neither a cartographer, an engraver, nor a commercial publisher. Here, I'm alluding to a well-known map published in London in the year 1711 that I and many other historians often refer to as the Crisp Map, more formally known as a complete description of the province of Carolina in three parts. This map includes a detailed view of the South Carolina coastline, a bit of the Gulf of Mexico, and an insert showing the fortified environs of urban Charleston. The map's long title concludes with the phrase, quote, published by Edward Crisp, end quote. But it includes no further information to clarify his role in the map's creation. It seems unlikely that this coffee man ever visited Carolina, so he was probably responsible for coordinating the effort to combine several different maps created by different artists at different times into one large printed sheet. By turning to the surviving records of the Lord's Proprietors of Carolina, we find a sort of confirmation of Edward Crisp's role in creating that familiar map. In June of 1711, the proprietors ordered their secretary to pay ten guineas to Mr. Edward Crisp, quote, for a map of Carolina and a draft of Port Royal, end quote, and to set aside 600 acres of land in the colony for the industrious coffee man. The proprietors described these rewards to Crisp as an acknowledgment of the, quote, several proofs of his good inclinations to our service and his earnest endeavors to promote the general good of our province, end quote. Surviving letters written by a number of 18th century Charlestonians confirm the central role of the Carolina Coffeehouse in connecting the great metropolis with the distant colony. In a letter written in November 1714, for example, the Reverend Gideon Johnston informed his London friends that the new brick church in Charleston, St. Philip's Church, then under construction, had been damaged by a hurricane that struck South Carolina two months earlier. Johnston was in London at the time, however, so he did not personally experience that storm. Rather, he had received a letter from William Rett of Charleston that provided many details. Last Tuesday at the Carolina Coffeehouse, Johnson said, he learned that had not the wind chopped about suddenly, and at that nick of time, Charlestown, with all its inhabitants, had been laid underwater. 
South Carolina businessman Henry Lawrence spent many hours at the Carolina Coffeehouse during his several sojourns to London between the 1740s and the 1770s, and his surviving letter books contain numerous references to sending and receiving mail through that venerable establishment. Similarly, 22-year-old Peter Manigo was studying law in London when he wrote to his mother in December 1753. Peter assured her that he did not waste his time and money as many of his Carolina peers did in London. The other young bucks teased him, said the young Mr. Manigo, because, quote, I refused to sit with them in the pit at the playhouse to have tobacco spit upon me out of the one-shilling gallery, but chose to go into the boxes because that is the proper place for a gentleman to be seen in, and because... I do not lounge away my mornings at that most elegant place, the Carolina Coffee House in Birchin Lane. End quote. South Carolinians visiting London were not the only ones familiar with the Carolina Coffee House. The early newspapers of colonial era Charleston demonstrate its utility and fame crossed the pond to these shores as well. Mr. Bernard Merritt, for example, a man who at some point in the 1720s acted as proprietor or manager of the Carolina Coffeehouse in Burton Lane, quit that establishment and settled in Charleston in the early 1730s. We don't know how long Mr. Merritt resided in the Palmetto City, but it appears that life in the provincial capital did not agree with the coffee man. On the 20th of May, 1732, Bernard Merritt put a rope around his neck and took his own life. The next day, reported the South Carolina Gazette, the coroner's inquest sat upon him, that is, convened to view his body, and brought in the verdict of non compos mentis, that is, not in his right mind. Similarly, in May of 1763, the South Carolina Gazette reported the death of Mary Taylor, who was the wife of John Taylor, the man who kept the Pennsylvania, Carolina, and Georgia coffeehouse in Birchin Lane, London. On a more cheerful note, I'll mention that a man calling himself simply Bob placed a curious advertisement in the local newspaper of 1772. Identifying himself as a waiter from the Carolina and Pennsylvania coffeehouse, Birchin Lane, Bob notified his potential customers in Charleston that, quote, he has taken Coles and the Greenland coffeehouse in Ball Court, Cornell, which he has fitted up very elegantly and assures all gentlemen that favor him with their commands, he will exert his utmost endeavors to merit their favors. And for the accommodation of American gentlemen, the South Carolina, Georgia, and Pennsylvania newspapers will be regularly taken in. End quote. Bob concluded his business notice with a final word designed to tempt his colonial customers. Quote, he makes American punch in perfection. End quote. Having studied early South Carolina history for more than 20 years, I had read all of this information about the Carolina Coffee House in books, newspapers, and manuscripts, but I had never personally traveled to London to experience the physical context of this important part of our community's story. I recently had a chance to amend that score, however, when I embarked on a research trip to England earlier this month. Much of that trip was spent at the National Archives of the United Kingdom, adjacent to Kew Gardens, but that institution is closed on Mondays. 
So, on the afternoon of Monday, January 6th, I wandered from my hotel in Trafalgar Square, up the Strand to Fleet Street, then into Ludgate Hill, through St. Paul's Cathedral, into Cheapside, to the Royal Exchange in Cornell. From that point, finding Birchin Lane was a piece of cake. You just continue eastward, cross to the south side of the street, and enter the ancient narrow footpath. The old Carolina Coffeehouse, once located four doors south of Cornell Street, on the left side of the lane, no longer exists. The original building perished in a 1748 fire that also consumed the original Royal Exchange and a significant portion of the surrounding neighborhood. The old coffeehouses were rebuilt immediately after that fire, but the Carolina Coffeehouse closed sometime before the American Civil War. Birchin Lane, which is just a bit wider than our Philadelphia Alley, is now crowded by modern buildings and paved with handsome bricks. No physical trace of the Carolina Coffeehouse survives, nor is there a marker to memorialize its former location. Nevertheless, my passion for Charleston history compelled me to make a sort of pilgrimage to the site that was once so important to our state's history. In the winter darkness that one experiences at 4.45 on a January afternoon in England, I stood quietly in Birchin Lane and imagined all those who had passed this way on their journey to Carolina. The bright light shining through the cold, misting rain created an enigmatic aura that heightened the experience. This spot was, in some ways, the ground zero of Carolina. It was the touchstone for thousands of travelers sailing to and from that distant land, from the beginning of the colonial experiment to its break from English rule and beyond. Stretching about 350 feet between Cornhill Street southward to Lombard Street, Birchin Lane was for me at that moment a sort of time machine that helped me understand some of the facts that I had learned in dusty old books and papers. Being there, as they say, really makes a difference. At 5 p.m., I stepped out from the south end of Birchin Lane and headed northwest on Lombard Street towards the Bank of England. A word of warning for any Carolinians visiting this spot at a similar time of day. It's as if an alarm sounds in every financial office throughout Cornell, the modern center of international banking, precisely at 5 p.m., and tens of thousands of business folk fly from their desks and into the streets. Having just spent a few moments in a revelry of historical bliss, I suddenly felt like a salmon swimming upstream through an obstacle course of hungry bears. It wasn't necessarily an unpleasant experience, but it was certainly a jolt back to the reality of modern-day London. Make a note of that phenomenon when you make your own pilgrimage to Birchin Lane. The text version of today's program, which you'll find on the CCPL website, includes a few maps of London's Cornhill Ward and some of my recent snapshots of Birchin Lane. I hope you'll take a look at those images when you have a chance. In the meantime, I'll see you at the coffee house. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org.
Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.